We're glad that you've come here to Veritas. We want to welcome you into this family. Um, so as you can see up on the screen, uh, we're going to continue this morning in our series in 1 Corinthians. And um, just a little bit about Corinthians. If you're brand new to Veritas, brand new to the Bible, maybe brand new to following Jesus, uh, 1 Corinthians was a book in the, in the New Testament. It's a letter written by Paul to a, a, a New Testament church at, at Corinth. And man, they were just a mess. Uh, their Sunday gatherings were a circus. I mean, we have got it good in here, y'all. Like the band up here leading us in worship, you know, we're like confessing creeds together. I mean, it, it, it was just an absolute circus that we kind of can't imagine and put real handles on of what was going on there in Corinth. And so we, what we've added in the tagline for this series, and we haven't really talked a lot about it, is that it's, it was a church that was divided. And what Paul was doing throughout this letter again and again and again wasn't that like he was going to speak to the church in Corinth and say, man, y'all are so messed up, y'all are so divided, you're so far like uh, going off the rails that, man, y'all should just pack it up and take it back home. That you guys shouldn't be a church anymore. No, what he's going to do is encourage them with the good news of the gospel again and again and again and show them that their unity is solely founded in, in Jesus, showing that in Jesus they can experience true unity, not with just God, but with, with each other. And so before we dive into chapter 14 this morning together, I think it's helpful to give you an example of how to frame the perspective of Paul and what he's about to, to, to speak in with specificity about the gifts of tongues and the gifts of prophecy. And I know it's like a shudder just went up half of our, the, the Baptist backs in the room. You're like, tongues and prophecy, what in the world? Yeah, uh, it's kind of like this is the best example I can give to you. Um, if many of us have been to a, a little kid's birthday party before, right? When's the last, anybody been to a little kid's birthday party, maybe in the past year or something like that? Yeah, it's chaos, right? Uh, you take uh, 12, six-year-olds, you pack them into a room, you feed them cake and sugar, and you expect things to go great, right? You expect, you know, you give them a couple sticks, tell them to hit that thing and then not hit each other with it, you know, like the piñata or whatever. What's going to happen? Yeah, little kids are going to hit each other with the sticks. Of course it's what's going to happen, right? And then after you get them all hopped up on sugar, you hopped up on cake and all that other stuff, you get them all excited. They open presents, and after they open the presents, what do they do with the presents? They want to play with it immediately, right there in that room, and you know, they're ripping in the, the paper and boxes and all this stuff, and inevitably, you're going to see kids play with toys in ways that they weren't in intended to, right? You've got some kids who's like, all right, my friends, it's time for me to build Legos, you know, and they just like, they clear a spot, they start separating their pieces out, you know, and it's like, yeah, I don't care if anybody else is in the room, I'm, it's Lego mode for me. But most of the time, it's, okay, I got a hockey stick, and I'm going to turn that into a sniper rifle or just a sword and just start hitting other people and pretending it's pinata time again, right? And whether you've seen it in one way or another, you know, there's some the weird kids are just playing in the box in the corner by themselves, you know, all kinds of other things where they don't even care about the present. They're just more happy about the box. They're like, Mom, I can't wait to color it later. You know, all of that is happening kind of all at once. See, the worst is when kids play with a toy in a way that they're going to break it. Right? They're, they're using like a Game Boy as a hammer or something, you know, and you're like, what in the world are you doing? Don't do that. It's going to break it. See, that's kind of what Paul is doing here. And, and like a good father, he's going to shepherd this church in order to see the gifts that they've been given by God happen in their church gatherings for the good of everyone in here. And because of this, the main point of our text today is this. The gifts of prophecy and tongues 
should be used to build up the church, not ourselves. It's the main point of this passage. If we are to be a church, and if the Corinthian church is to be a church that's eager to see the Holy Spirit work among us, we should strive to excel in building up the church with our gifts. And the church, and by the church, I mean each other within the church. Let's look at the text together. So if you uh, have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 14. That's in the, uh, the latter half of the New Testament. Just keep thumbing to the right until you see it. If you hit Revelation, you went too far. Uh, if you grabbed one of the back black Bibles on the back table on your way in, and you don't own a Bible, uh, please consider that Bible our gift to you this morning. Uh, we are going to read uh, and just uh, have read over you just right now, 1 Corinthians 14, verses 1 through 19. And uh, we'll, we'll pick back up in verse 20 next week. Let's hear the words of Paul this morning. Remember, coming off of the great chapter on love and the embodiment of what true love actually is, as God himself expressed in the personal work of Jesus in chapter 13, he is the one who's patient and kind, whose love doesn't envy or boast. He's not arrogant. And right off the heels of chapter 13, Paul says these words for us. They'll also be on the screen for you. Paul says, Pursue love. Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies <clears throat> speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now brothers, brothers and sisters, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is being played? If the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? No one. So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. Now there are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning, but if I do not know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in the building up of the church. Then Paul turns to his application here. What should we do? He says, there's verse 13, Therefore, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue and my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, and I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider, outside of you, outside the gift of uh, interpreting tongues, say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God. I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Let's go to God again in prayer and ask for his help. 
Lord Jesus, um, we come to you now asking for wisdom again. Uh, God, we ask, as we have already asked in this gathering during the prayer of illumination that Ellen prayed from the stage, God, would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us ears to hear this morning? Um, Would you allow us, by the power of your Spirit, God, um, to have our eyes open to the beauties and wonders and mysteries of this text? God, um, I pray for me personally that uh, in my preparation to preach this passage, um, that the work that you have wrought through me, uh, through the, the commentaries I've poured over, through the, the, the men and women that have spoke into the, the sermon, through the, the staff and elders that have been consulted, God, I pray, may we build up one another this morning. May we strive to excel in building and edifying one another in this gathering. And Jesus, I pray, may we leave here this morning um, more convinced of the beauty of the gospel and um, more... Um, built up by those around us as a part of this church gathered. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So let's remember again in this section of 1 Corinthians, he's dressing the chaos that's going on in these gatherings. And so this is a corrective word from Paul. So like I said earlier, some of us would expect that Paul at this point, uh, with how many things he's had to address, he might just be like, you know what? Spiritual gifts thing, you know, let's just not, you know, let's just, let's not, you know, it's, it, it, it can kind of get out of hand, it's causing more problems, is the juice really worth the squeeze here uh, with these pursuit of spiritual gifts? And plus they can get weird real quick, you know, you could, some of us in the room may be thinking that like, Paul, why, why don't you just give up on this? Uh, you don't really talk about it a ton and arrest in the New Testament, why don't we just give this up? But he doesn't. He doesn't at all here. It's not what Paul does. Like a good father, instead of taking away these good gifts that are being misused, he's going to show the church the purpose, the problem of of the way these gifts are being misused, and the practice of the gifts of tongues and prophecy. So what we're going to do is walk through these verses, and uh, we're going to have our noses stuck in the text a a ton this morning. So if you've got a Bible or an app on your phone, you're going to be able to reference that a ton. But we're going to see the purpose of tongues and prophecy in verses 1 through 5. We see the problem in particular with tongues and uninterpreted tongues in verses 6 through 12, and finally the practice uh, of, of tongues and prophecy in verses 13 through 19. So let's jump right in in verses 1 through 5. This first section uh, is uh, to give us the purpose of prophecy in tongues, and Paul raise, lays it right on out for us. So if you've been waiting on how to get specific about tongues and prophecy and what these particular gifts are, you don't have to wonder anymore. You don't have to just trust me or listen to any definitions that we give you on the slides. We've got spirit-empowered, authoritative Apostle Paul giving us teaching about tongues and prophecy right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So what is the purpose of tongues? Let's talk about tongues first. The purpose of tongues, Paul gives us, is the building up of the individual believer. Now, I didn't, we're not talking about what it is or what it looks like yet. We're just talking about what it's for. What does it do? See, the primary audience of tongues is God not others in the church. So this primary audience of God, the, the way that what this is for is to build up the individual believer. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 says he speaks not to men, but to God. Also in verse 2, no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. And in verse 4, we get the real clear purpose. The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up. This is what this is for here. 
Paul even says in verse 5, now I want you all to speak in tongues. Paul, Paul recommends this, uh, this gift of, of speaking in tongues because he wants to see every believer built up in and of themselves in their faith in Jesus. But he gives the caveat, and it's very clear. In the gathering, these tongues are a lesser gift that should not be necessarily pursued in the gathering of the church unless they're interpreted. Because the main point he gives in verse 5 is so that the church may be built up. So if tongues don't operate like prophecy, to speak to one another in an intelligible way, to build them up, they are to be silent in the church. So tongues are this God-directed speech that is usually unintelligible by others that builds up the individual believers as they engage in it. Now let's get to the purpose of prophecy. The purpose of prophecy is clear. It builds up the whole church. It is intelligible speech uh, that the primary audience of prophecy is those within the church, whether that's individual to individual or it is the, an individual to the whole gathered church. A word of prophecy is, is given, and like in verse 3, verse 3 says he speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. That's what prophecy is for. Verse 4, the one who prophesies builds up the church, and in verse 5, the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues because the primary purpose of prophecy and what it's for is the building up of the church here. So the big takeaways is prophecy is vastly preferable for settings of gathered worship like this in the church. Two, tongues are preferable for settings of private worship and prayer, like devotional time in their own homes would be the presumptive prescription by Paul here. And Paul's desire is Paul wants everyone to strive in these gifts of prophecy and tongues. But in the gathered church, tongues gets ruled out as a public display unless it acts like prophecy, being interpreted and building one another up. Now, Paul here highlights and gives analogies of why tongues are a real problem. And I know we've already talked about the purpose of these things. We will get to like the, how these things actually work out here in a couple minutes. But I want us to flow with Paul here, flow in this narrative, kind of feel this out before we get to prescriptive language of what should actually happen and how we pursue these things. See, the real problem is in the gathering is if you can't understand what's being said by another person in the gathering, as we gather like this, we could presume like that's not going to help one another. That's not going to help anyone in here if you can't understand what's being said. If all the songs that we sang this morning were in Russian, I would presume that very few of us, unless you're going through the course and you're going through Russian, that you'd have any clue, and even if you're going through the course and you know Russian, how much of those songs are you actually going to pick up, bro? Like, not much, right? Not much quite yet. Maybe unless you've got all the way through it, you know? You're fluent or something like that. It's just not going to be helpful. It's not going to build up. Again, it's going to be like the kids playing with toys that weren't intended. Or even worse, using those toys to kind of beat each other up in ways that actually hurts others. So let's talk about this problem of tongues in the gathering. The problem of tongues, verses 6 through 12. See, tongues weren't a problem for the people that were speaking them. Tongues weren't a problem for the people that were speaking them. They were having their intended effect. They were being built up in their faith as they participated in this God-gifted way of being built up. They were a problem for the other people who were hearing them, right? That was where the problem lies. It's like your weird cousin who thinks they're God's gift to planet Earth, 
uh, when they sing, but really they sound way more like a, a American Idol, like the blooper reel audition tape stuff, you know, like where they think they are God's gift to, to planet Earth and they're singing, but it's like they're the only one having a good time in the room because of their singing. Like they're having a great time and no one else is having a good time because of how much they don't realize their, their singing sounds like nails on a chalkboard. Like it's just not good for anyone else. So in verses 6 through 9, we see the importance of speaking in a way that builds up. It's the point of part of, uh, of speaking in a prophetic way in our gatherings. And note that all things that happen in this six, verses six through, nine, 6 through 9 are speaking. Let's look at these verses again. Verse 6. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? And then Paul gives examples. If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? If the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? The presumption? No one. So it is with yourselves. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. So Paul gives first these examples of things that actually do help that do help when we gather like this as the church and bring words of, of, of revelation and knowledge and prophecy and teaching. And again, this happens in our gatherings all the time. He's going to say later at the, at the second half of uh, chapter 14, said that when we come together as a church, yeah, there's all these elements that come together. Think about the songs that we sing. Like everyone has a, a song or uh, in, in the call to worship that we begin our gatherings with. with. This morning, I stood up here and gave a welcome where I showed, I wanted to show that God's love is for all of us, and it's shown so clearly in the person and work of Jesus dying a brutal death on a cross for us so that we could see God's love displayed for us. And then we were called to worship through the confession of a historic creed together this morning. And these are our ways in which we bring together these words that build up these intelligible words in the gathering. And then throughout our gatherings, there's moments and opportunities for prophecy where encouraging words happen. Think about before and after the gathering this morning, when you have real opportunity to speak to one another, to encourage one another, where there may be opportunity for you to share an encouraging word that you've been gifted by God for another person, whether that's this morning you've been gifted that word, or sometime this past week, of, man, I was praying for you this week. And I really feel like God wants to be able to share this particular word with you this morning to encourage you and build you up. This is a way in which the whole church kind of takes relational ownership of one another. And just guess what? Most of the time, it's not weird. Like, yep, yeah, the Holy Spirit isn't weird. People are weird. People make things super weird and awkward. If you say, thus saith the Lord to someone... Yeah, you can just say, like, yeah, buddy, you know, you, you can step back down. Like, you can't do that. The only way you can say, thus saith the Lord, is if you're opening up the Scriptures and then reading it to someone else. And even then, it's like, well, I don't know if this particular passage of Scripture is for me at this particular moment. The best thing you could say in those moments is, man, this is my best guess of what I think God has for you this morning. See, Paul gives these analogies of these uninterpreted tongues that just don't help. He says it's like an instrument that doesn't give a distinct sound. It's like a bugle that's supposed to help people charge in people into battle, and instead these tongues are just confusing people. I mean, have you ever heard a beautiful orchestral, uh, like, uh, uh, orchestral uh, experience before? Have you ever been to like a symphony before? 
Or maybe uh, you've just seen a, a good movie that has a great score and a, and a great soundtrack to it. Uh, maybe if you're one of those guys that's like, yeah, I'm not super into music, maybe go back and watch a scene from your favorite movie. You know, you can get the most bro film out there. But like in those moments where like it's the most heroic moment in the movie, things are going to happen musically that actually stir your affections, that something is happening, that give you a sense of like something grand is happening right now. And what Paul's saying is, those things have their intended effect. Those words of prophecy and encouragement and revelation and knowledge, when they have their intended effect, they actually stir our affections for Jesus. They point us to something beyond ourselves, like those orchestral experiences that we've had before. We've been caught up in music, and it's just so beautiful. Now take that in contrast, that amazing like North Carolina symphony, and put it next to a middle school band concert, Right? Anybody been to a middle school band concert? I remember being in a middle school band concert, right? I was the kid playing all the wrong notes. That was me, right? <laughs> it was before I got on a guitar. It was like, trombone, here we go, you know? And it was just terrible. But if you've been in one of those scenarios, like one of them is amazing that helps build you up, and the other one just has to be endured. I mean, God bless all the parents sitting through all those things. It's just, it is like nails on a chalkboard. It sounds like all the instruments just dying a slow, painful death rather than music. It's terrible right? See, what Paul's saying about tongues and gathered worship is saying, man, these things and all things that are to be done in in a public setting of worship like this are to build up. And tongues in and of themselves just cannot do that. So we already know what tongues are for. They build the believer up. But just because you know what something's for doesn't mean you know how to use it. Again, like, I go, I watch the symphony, I see how a violin works or a cello works, and then you're supposed to pull the bow across the strings. But anytime I've ever tried to do that myself, it sounds like a cat is dying. It's like, you know, it's terrible, it's right? And just because I know what it's for doesn't mean I know necessarily how to use it. And guess what? Biblically, we're not given like a how-to manual on how to speak in tongues. We're not. We're not even given any like uh, where people wrote down what was exactly being said. So we have to ask ourselves the question, what exactly is this tongue speech? What is speaking in tongues? Here's the caveat I want to give you up front. There are things, a few things about tongues we can definitively know because the Bible tells us specifically about them. There's a few things that we cannot know explicitly because the Bible doesn't give us that kind of how-to manual for it. So let's start with the things that we don't know. Number one, we don't know what tongues sound like. We don't know exactly what they sound like when they happen. We don't know what language we're speaking when we speak in tongues. Talk more about that in just a second. Three, we don't know the mechanics of exactly how they build us up. We're just told by Paul that they do. We're told by Paul this is what they're for, this is what the intended effect they have within us, but we're not even told how. What we do know about tongues is this, and this is clear through Scripture. Essentially, tongues is unintelligible speech to others. If you just want to encapsulate it to that as just a pragmatic definition, it's unintelligible speech to others. It is speaking into the air because this speech is directed to God. You look back at verse 2 and see that Paul's really clear about this. He's speaking to God. So, therefore, tongues are a form of prayer. Essentially, tongues are a form of prayer because that's what prayer is all about. 
you're new to God, if you're new to following Jesus, if you're new here, and, and this is like one of your first times back in the church, man, I'm super glad you're here. You might be feeling like, man, I picked the wrong Sunday to come back, talking about tongues and prophecy and all this weird stuff. Welcome to church. We're a whole bunch of weirdos here too. You're going to fit right in. I'm broken, you're broken. The whole point is to point to Jesus and to say that our only hope is in the resurrection of Jesus and what he's done. And this is the authoritative guide that we've been given. And so we're going to center ourselves on this. And so tongues are this form of prayer that means speaking to God. But then also, maybe unlike much of our experience with those who spoke in tongues, tongues are controllable. Tongues are controllable means that although they are a gift from God, they aren't experienced in some uncontrollable way where we lose control of ourselves. See, whatever tongues are in practice, it for sure looks way less like someone having a seizure and way more like someone in passionate, devoted prayer to God. Because that's what this is. It's speech to God. Tongues build up the person speaking them. Again, we don't know exactly how, but they do. We can be confident that they do because Scripture says this. And we also know that tongues are a language. They're not just a string of words like baby babble coming out of someone's mouth. It's just not like a da-da-da-da-da-da thing. This has to be a language. This has to be something understandable both to God and when tongues are interpreted, they are actually interpreted by someone who is gifted to do so. They have meaning. Now again for another caveat. There is a great debate within the church and with scholars and all the commentary work that I've poured myself over for hours about uh, with whether or not there can be a, de- a definite claim about whether these languages, we can all agree that they're languages, but are these languages limited to tongues of men, like actual languages on planet Earth that are meant for somebody else, someone else, uh, somewhere else, like human languages, or are these, these the languages of angels, like this angelic language? Like we saw last week in chapter 13, if I speak in the tongues of angels, is where people kind of get that line of thought. And we can't say definitively one way or another that everywhere tongues happen in every expression, are they human languages expressed for somebody else somewhere else that we just don't know, or are they angelic languages just meant directly for God? Now, here's my personal conviction. The Bible's over here. I'm over here. I want to give my personal conviction on this. And just give you where I personally land. I think that tongues are an intense experience in prayer where we are enabled in a supernatural way to express praise and thanksgiving to God. Essentially, this is prayer that transcends our own abilities in languages known to us. And beyond that, I just think the Bible's like, it's, it's very much open to interpretation on that. We don't know much beyond that. Biblical scholars are going to argue about words like xenoglossia and glossalia, and if you know what those mean, things mean in Greek, you know, I'm really glad that you're here. I'm glad you're going to be able to teach others. We, you know, you, we'll, we'll get you into teaching the next Bible study that happens here in this church. But we can't know a lot of that. But the, here's the main point here. Paul's not trying to argue about what that is here in this passage of Scripture. That's not his main point. Paul's main point here is when we gather together in the church, these, these gifts of tongues and prophecy should be used to build the church up. He's not primarily focused on the what in here. He's, 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 he's very concerned about the how and, and the why. We 
as the church, when we gather like this, this is when the church is assembled together, and it should be for all of our mutual benefit. I mean, Paul's taken major aside saying, uh, when he talked about the table, being concerned about people who are being left out of the communion meal, or or the, the roles of men and women in the church, and those being confused. I mean, Paul is concerned about everyone as they gather together in the church, and that points to the value of every single one of us as we gather together as a church here on a Sunday morning. You have value. You have meaning. You have purpose. You're being called to worship King Jesus alongside of your church family, and anything that gets in the way of that, man, that should be left out. Anything that is a stumbling block here should be left by the wayside. Something we say here at Veritas all the time, that our our service teams exist um, to serve you guys and us on a Sunday morning so that there's no stumbling blocks for us. Because the gospel in and of itself is already offensive. Think about this. The gospel in and of itself is offensive. The gospel is this. God loves you created you. He made you in his own image, but you've rejected that. You've rejected both God's design for your life, his rule over your life, and you've instead chose to run in, in opposing and opposite directions for his intention and, and meaning for your, for your life, choosing what you want over what he has designed, choosing what you individually want over anything else that that you might be called to uh, submit to in the lordship and kingship of Jesus. We've rejected his kindly and kingly rule over us in order to set up a tiny little kingdom just for ourselves. And that, that kingdom at the center of it is sin. And we've built a throne to it. And we've, we've worshipped ourselves in the mirror in this name of sin. But what Jesus has done for us and the goodness of the gospel is God did not leave us there. God did not leave us in that state, that sad, sorry state in and of ourselves just to, to worship and, and worship this sense of self or worship this sense of something else that was going to save us. God did not leave us in that slavery. He has come to redeem us. Jesus came as a man, as the God-man, not only to die the death for sin that we deserve, but to show us the life of righteousness, show us a life of fruitfulness, show us a life of real loving union with God himself, and welcome us to walk in his ways, not just to free us from sin, but to give us a life of light and meaning and purpose and value to walk in his own ways, even saying things like, even greater works than these you see in me that you will do. This is what Jesus says about us. This is incredible, amazing truth that Jesus welcomes us into. Yes, he died death for sin for us so that we could be reconciled to God, but he also bought for us resurrection life and newness of life to be empowered by the very spirit that raised him from the grave. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the good life that we have been invited to in the person and work of Jesus. See, the point of tongues and prophecy that comes into all of this is that tongues should be avoided in the gathering unless someone interprets them because it's going to be a stumbling block anyway else. So the point is emphatically made by Paul in verse 12. So with yourselves, 
Since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, which you should be, church, strive to excel in the building up of the church. And this is why Paul highly recommends this gift of prophecy. Because prophecy, the sole purpose of it is to build up the church through the, through the sharing of these encouraging words that are primarily rooted in, and come from Scripture and always accord with Scripture. And we'll see this point driven further home in the last bit of this passage that we'll cover today, verses 13 through 19. Let's look at these verses one more time together. Paul kind of gives a case study here of the practice of the gifts of tongues. Look at verse 13. Therefore, this is, his, this is what I recommend, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, and I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, and I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how will anyone in the position of an outsider, outside of yourself, say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough. It's good for you, but the other person is not being built up. It's not good for them. Verse 18. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Verse 19, nevertheless, in church, in the assembly, in the ecclesia, where we are right now, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. See, the problem with prophecy was that it was being devalued in the church at Corinth. They were overemphasizing this gift of tongues because it looked flashy. It looked like something more hyper-spiritual. And I think the same thing could be said of some of us today. If we look to other people who practice uh, other uh, gifts of the Spirit, some of us look at those uh, that, that might operate in certain gifts of the Spirit and say, man, I don't know if I'll ever be able to arrive there. I don't know why God hasn't gifted me that, with that particular gift, whether it's tongues or it's teaching or, or, or if it's hospitality or if it's any of the other gifts of maybe just administration. Yeah, like my calendar is a wreck. You know, I'm terrible with organization. Why haven't I got, been given the God-given gift of administration? You know, you may be thinking those things. But what Paul is saying here, see, is the problem with tongues. It was being overvalued in the gathering. It was being used improperly without this interpretation. And his solution in verse 13 is that those that speak in tongues should pray to interpret them. And I kind of see it as this. Paul's kind of like a, hey, this is a, you know, two birds of one stone situation here, like two spiritual gifts. You should just pray for both, you know? Like, just imagine if you can speak in tongues, but then also interpret those same tongues. It's just going to be the best of both worlds here. Like, why not pray for that particular uh, spiritual gift? See, Paul gives this case study of using tongues in the church and praying in tongues in the gathering. He says that he, when he prays with his mind, uh, but his mind is unfruitful. I think what he's essentially saying is, after the fact, he's saying that this is bad for others. If he's just totally focused on himself in this, just focused on his individual um, uh, sense of being built up in God. And what I think Paul has in mind here about unfruitfulness is the building up of only just the self. And, and you can already see the problem with that. If the point of the gathering is to be with one another in the gathering, to build one another up, the point of spiritual gifts is the building up of the church. And the way this problem is solved is the eventual end goal of tongues is the interpretation of those tongues so that the church can be built up. Self-edification as an end of itself essentially is a bad thing. 
We'll talk more about that in, in just a minute because I believe there's a very timely forward word for us in this area and the idea about kind of the point of why we gathered together like this on a Sunday. But the important question I want to ask first is, like, who should interpret tongues when they happen? And I know we've already kind of gone over this, the whole like two birds, one stone situation here. And what I think Paul has in mind is that most of the time the individual speaking in tongues would be the person as the primary interpreter of those tongues. And of course, you can't read out situations uh, or write out situations where other people would be interpreting one another's tongues, but it kind of makes sense with Paul's argument here. Again, here's Paul's logic of praying in the Spirit. He also says, I'm going to pray with my mind. And I think he has in mind there interpreting the tongue. And then finally culminating in the statement at the end, it's saying, although I speak in tongues more than all of you, nevertheless, in church, I'm going to speak five words with my mind in order to instruct rather than 10,000 which was like a Hebrew way of saying a gazillion words in a tongue. So prophecy builds up the church, and uninterpreted tongues acting like prophecy also builds up the church. So how do you get interpreted tongues? First, you need someone speaking, and then you also need someone who can interpret. And if the person that is speaking those tongues cannot interpret them, Paul's going to say later, they should be silent in the church. And next week we'll see more about that and how emphatic Paul is about telling the church to speak in tongues to keep silent unless there is interpreter. So again, at the end of a passage like this and a teaching on this, I think we would be wrong if we were to not just ask ourselves a few questions. And I know that there's many ways, I'm sure, that many of us have feels about a, pas- a passage about this. Whether it's a spirit-born conviction like man, I just haven't been pursuing the gifts. Or, man, I really don't like this passage of Scripture. It makes me uncomfortable. Or, I don't know what's going on in your individual hearts, but there's two questions I think that we need to ask just for all of us today. One is, why is self-edification as an end of itself a bad thing? And finally, two, why don't we earnestly desire spiritual gifts? Because we're honest, I don't think a lot of us do. So first, Why is self-edification as an end of itself a bad thing? When the world around us, uh, much of it uh, speaking into us on a daily, individual basis, I mean, you could boil down like 90% of tweets if they're not just trolls and anger posts. All the tweets are about ways to better yourself, things you could do or read or, you know, implement in your life to make yourself better, right? And is there something wrong with making yourself better? Is there something wrong with building yourself up? Not necessarily, right? What Paul's going to say here is self-edification as an end of itself will be essentially a bad thing in the long run, right? See, we're taught by everything around us that, like, you know, culturally, it's approved to focus on ourselves 100% of the time. So if our friends are needy, man, they're just toxic. Or if we have responsibilities that we're being called to in our life, man, that's oppressive, Or, man, are we going to take sin seriously? You must be a legalist. See, we import this stuff into the church constantly. See, the church, the assembly, us gathered together here right now, this is not just a place for you to passively receive. This is not just a place for you to hear a nice sermon and sing some nice songs. This is a place for you to give. And I'm not talking about financially. I'm, just, I'm talking about to one another relationally. 
Like, we should expect God to use us to encourage one another. We should expect God to gift us in individual ways that bless one another as we gather like this as the church. Because this isn't a convenience store. This isn't a, you know, a shopping mall to just go get me some gospel on Sunday. This is not a transactional thing. Man, this is more like a family potluck that we come together every week where we've got songs, we've got words, we've got sermons, we've got the table, we have all these elements, and there's one thing in mind. It is the glory of Jesus on display for all of us. And guess what? It takes all of us to do it. Sharing words of encouragement with one another, like blessing one another, praying for one another, coming alongside of one another. So that brings us to the question of why don't we earnestly desire the spiritual gifts? And I think one of the big reasons is that we're, we're afraid. <laughs> we're scared. We don't want to be the church at Corinth. We don't want to be the weirdos. We don't want to get it wrong. And let me speak into that last one. Um, I think that, that inclination within us to like not get it wrong, I think most of the time comes from a, a good place, but that's not a, a, a gospel place. See, in the gospel, in the good news of the gospel, following Jesus is the only place, really, where you can get it wrong. <laughs> and it's okay, because we're all going to get it wrong. Every day, every single week, we're going to make missteps in, in, in the way that we're trying to counsel and love and point one another to Jesus. But the, the real kicker is, we have this amazing thing. It's called confession. It's called repentance. It's when we do get it wrong, we get to go before God and our brother and sister in Christ and say, man, I was off here. I messed that up. Would you, would you extend grace to me and forgive me in those ways? Because we, we know we always have grace and forgiveness in God our Father because of what Christ has done for us. But the church and us within the church, this ought to be the safest place for us to practice and pursue the spiritual gifts and say, man, I might be off here. I might be getting this wrong. But this ought to be a grace-filled place where it's like, man, I, I lovingly encourage you to go there with me. I encourage you to share that word with me. I encourage you to try to bring that word of encouragement or correction or whatever because this is a place of grace. This is a place where we want to see each other built up. See, that, that sense of discomfort, that sense of I don't want to get it wrong, you may be thinking, you know what, I'm, just, I'm fine with my quiet times and my Bible studies. I'm just going to leave that stuff to the weirdo. But here's the problem. <laughs> the more you study your Bible, like if we're going to be Veritas, our name is Truth Church. You know, like Veritas means truth in Latin. If we're going to be Bible people, we have to take these passages of Scripture seriously. They've got to mean something for us. And so I think that word, another word from Paul that he gave to the church at Thessalonica, First Thessalonians 5, 19 through 21, uh, received this word this morning, church. Paul says, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Paul's not telling us to check our brains at the door. He's not telling us to leave behind discernment and just wander off into weird myths and, and strange practices. Paul is welcoming us into receive the spiritual gift that God has already promised to his church. 
Jesus, even in his teaching, tells us to ask and receive, right? Knock, and the door's going to be open to you. And when Jesus teaches about prayer in those ways, he says, God, your Father's not going to give you a scorpion. He's not going to give you a snake. If you ask for an egg, if you ask for a good thing, God is not going to give you a bad thing. So we'll get more into what these practices look like as we gather as a church next week. But I want to leave us in this place and, and, and give us space to ask those questions of, and am I really desiring the spiritual gifts? Do I value self-edification of just me and building myself up as higher than anyone else? Am I pouring out? Am I investing in others? Am I encouraging others around me? Let me pray that Jesus, by his Spirit, does that work in us. Jesus, I pray this morning um, that we would be convicted, uh, we would be encouraged, um, Jesus, that we would see these gifts of prophecy and gifts of speaking in tongues as um, a means by which you want to build us up, to encourage one another, to um, edify one another. God, I pray that, God, we would eagerly desire the spiritual gifts here. And I also pray that for myself, um, that the times and places where I have despised prophecy God, I confess that I have. Father, I pray, um, would you encourage, convict, uh, allow us to be able to walk uh, in a new sense of your love and your care for us, that you really have gifted us with these gifts, um, and, and God, that we would be able to walk um, in the calling of being your church to encourage one another in the usage of these things as we gather. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.